Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together as we study God's Word, and let us be challenged to apply His truth to our hearts so that we may serve Him faithfully. May God bless you. Picking up where we left off last week, actually we're going to read the last verse that we dealt with last week. If you'll turn your Bibles to John chapter 11. We'll begin with verse 45 and complete the chapter, verse 57. So John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. Allow me to read this passage. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews but went away from there to the country near the uh, wilderness into the city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it, so that they might seize him. Let's bow together. Dear Lord, open our eyes and our hearts and our spirits to the truths of your word. Lord, there are so many who have been exposed to the truth of the gospel, yet there are so many different responses. Lord, it's difficult for us to understand how anybody could see the power and the work of Jesus Christ and not truly believe that he is God the Son. But Lord, help us to realize that it's not the responses of the people that should lead us, but it's your command to share your gospel. But we have no control over how people will respond. What we do have control over is how we share. May we be found faithful in sharing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it's really his last miracle or sign prior to his crucifixion and resurrection. Really, his ministry on earth was pretty much over. And what we see is that this great feat was really his most powerful. Prior to this, what was everybody talking about? Well, if you go back just a few verses, they were talking about Jesus healing a blind man who was blind from birth. No one had ever done that before, but Jesus did. And so that was the talk of the town. That was what everybody was thinking about Jesus. But then Jesus ends on a final high note. Lazarus was not only dead. See, Jesus had already risen at least two people from the dead. But they were still being carried out. They were not even entombed yet. 
And so technically, the Jews believe that the spirit or the soul remained for at least maybe about three days in case the body resuscitated. And so they kind of maybe said, well, that's just could have possibly happened because they had just passed away. But I shared something the other day. I said Lazarus was not only dead, not only in the tomb, but he had been in the tomb for four days, past the three-day expiration date for the soul to remain. I use this phrase, he was good and dead. This is the truth. Nobody, not even Mary and Martha, expected Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. Even when Jesus said, move this stone away from the tomb... They were upset, at least Martha was upset. Lord, why? No, no, it stinks. Why remind us of the scent of death by opening up the tomb? But Jesus commanded, they did. And he did that wonderful three-word phrase, Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man, four days, with his body already decaying, was made whole and walked out of the tomb. Well, he kind of shuffled because he's still bound in the grave clothes. But... Jesus said, loose him, let him go. Now we talked about this a little bit last week. Lazarus was brought back from the dead. He was not resurrected, he was resuscitated. Resurrected is when you receive a perfected body. When Jesus was resurrected, he had a perfected body. Yes, he still had visible signs of the scars in his hands and the side. But he was able to walk through the walls of that tomb. The tomb was not open for him to get out, but for others to see him. He also walked into locked rooms because his apostles were afraid of those who might come after them, and they had locked themselves in an upper room. And Jesus just suddenly appeared twice with the doors locked. He had a perfected body. On that last day when the trumpet sounds, we will rise from the dead, and we will be given that perfected body that rises and meets Jesus in the air, fit for heaven. That's our hope. That's our belief. That is what we know will happen. What we're looking at here today is the reactions of what Jesus just did. His greatest miracle, bringing Lazarus back to life after four days in the tomb. Verse 45, where we left off last week, therefore many of the Jews came to Mary and saw what he had done and they believed in him. Now we have to kind of Qualify, what does that mean to believe in him? We know that Jesus had many followers through his three, three and a half year uh, ministry on earth. Many of them followed him because of what they were getting out of Jesus. People were being healed. The, the lame walked. Lepers were restored. The deaf heard. The blind saw. Demons were even being cast out. And then one that everybody talked about a lot was feeding the 5,000 and others with just little simple loaves and fish. They were following Jesus for what they were getting out. But when Jesus said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no place in my Father's kingdom. That was a hard saying. And many, many turned away and followed no more. One of the saddest verses in the Bible. But what we do know is that many did truly believe and continued to follow Jesus no matter what. And did the people in verse 45, did they truly believe? Well, pretty good evidence that they were true believers. How is that? Well, let's look at the reason why Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He did it for the glory of God so that God's glory would be seen through him. 
so that it would be proof positive that he was of God and he is equal to God. And so the people saw that evidence and they believed. Also, the evidence is how the others responded. When the others went to the Pharisees and reported, the Pharisees were concerned. They said, you know, if if we keep letting them go on like this, then all the world will believe and be drawn to him. So there's there again is more evidence that these people truly believed. That it wasn't just a passing fancy or anything like that, that the people believed. So we look and we see the contrast between these believers and those who went to report to the Pharisees. Now we look at the rejectors, picking up verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now, why would anybody who was present and saw Lazarus four days in the tomb come out? How in the world could they not believe that Jesus is of God? That he has the power of God to raise the dead back to life. Now, that's a huge question. Well, if you remember, there were many people who came out to Bethany to minister to Mary and Martha at the loss of their brother Lazarus. Many of those probably came out of Jerusalem to minister. Bethany was only about a mile or two miles, something like that, outside of Jerusalem. So many of the ones who came out to minister were probably from Jerusalem. Well, the fact is that many of the Jews who lived in Jerusalem were heavily influenced by the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And so they had heard throughout Jesus' ministry, do not listen to this man. Everything he does is either a fake, being done in the power of Satan, or whatever. They refused to accept Jesus. They continued to reject him as being the Son of God. So hearing this for three, three and a half years, these people said, I don't know what to believe. I just saw my own eyes, Lazarus raised from the dead, but somebody more spiritual than me needs to give me an explanation. And so that's probably why some of these went to the Pharisees. Because they did not understand how in the world could this man named Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. How could he have that kind of power? And so they went to the religious leaders, the ones who were supposed to be servants of God, who were experts in the word of God. They went to the professionals to get advice, believing that they would obviously know what to tell them. Well, that's just the problem. They trusted a man instead of God. Did you know that's a problem today? A lot of people believe in what their favorite pastor on the television says rather than the Word of God. You know, not everybody who preaches on television preaches the Word of God. Believe it or not, that's true. They'll believe man instead of God. Open up your Bibles, read it for yourself, let the Holy Spirit guide you and give you wisdom and understanding in His Word. He will give you the truth. Yes, you're here hearing me to preach the Word of God. And I always challenge you, Read the scriptures. Compare it to what I'm saying. If you have any qualms about what I say compared to the scriptures, come to me. Let's discuss it. I might be wrong. And I'll admit it if I am. When we look at what this what happens, the Pharisees, who were they? Well, they were only part of the religious leaders. 
They're the ones that we hear about the most because they're kind of the ones seen out in society the most. First of all, they're the experts on the law. They're kind of the lawmakers. Kind of the, uh, it, they'd be the Congress if you looked at our United States leadership. They were the ones who made the laws and tried to keep the laws. Now, what they primarily did is they looked at the, the laws of Moses that God had given Moses, those really first five books of the Bible, and they made sure that the people of the Jewish faith kept the law. And in order to make sure that they kept the law, they added their own rules and regulations on top of the Ten Commandments and the what we find in the first five books of the Bible. And they basically were controlling the Jewish people by all these rules and regulations. That was their control over the people. But they were only a part of the group. There were also the Sadducees. The, the Pharisees were kind of the middle class. The Sadducees were more of the aristocratic part of the religious leaders. They were more the chief priests. They were the judges. They were the ones who people would sit before and they would judge over them as to whether they were keeping the word of God. And so they were kind of the elite group. And pretty much every time the high priest would have been a Sadducee. Now, Believe it or not, these two groups rarely ever agreed on anything. See, the, the Pharisees believed all the Old Testament. They believed in miracles. They even believed that there would be a resurrection from the dead in the last day. But the Sadducees, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in the prophets. They didn't believe in miracles. And they didn't believe in the resurrection. And those saying this, that's why they were sad, you see. Because they didn't believe the resurrection. But this was one case that they all agreed. We've got to do something with Jesus. Why? We look and we see that they formed a council. We know that this is called the Sanhedrin. It's 70 men who were composed of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the, and the high priests. And they basically held court without Jesus and they condemned him. And they looked and they said, pick it up, verse 47 and 48. What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Notice one thing. Did they deny the miracle that Jesus had just performed? If we keep letting him do these things... They're obviously admitting that Jesus is doing these things. He is raising people from the dead. He is giving sight to the blind and many, many other miracles. Nowhere are they denying the miracles of Jesus. There's too many eyewitnesses for them to deny it. In the past, they tried to state that, well, Jesus is doing these things, but he's doing them in the power of Satan, not of God. But the more evidence that comes, the more they could not say that he was not able to do these things in the power of God. They should have been recognizing him as being the power of God, the presence of God, the Messiah, the gift of God. They should have been welcoming him in as their ruler, as their king, as their Messiah. They should have been saying, he is here, let us bow before him. That's not what he does. He sees, they see him as a threat. Why do they see him as a threat? We've got to understand the time and the situation. Rome 
controls the vast majority of the known world at that time, including Jerusalem. Now, Rome, as a general rule, wants everybody to follow the Roman way of life. And the Roman way of life is what we call Roman mythology, to believe in multiple different gods, each god controlling different aspects of your life, and to see Caesar as the chief god over you. Caesar had total control over the lives of the people. However, the Jewish faith was very powerful, and Rome basically came to the point and said, we would rather allow the Jews to practice their faith as long as they keep peace in the land. Instead of causing a ruckus, instead of going in and destroying them and taking control of them, we will allow them to continue their practice as long as they keep peace. So they were the ones who appointed the high priest. And the high priest that they appointed at that time was Caiaphas. And Caiaphas actually did a pretty good job. The Bible says, uh, the scripture here says that Caiaphas was high priest that year. But it doesn't mean that he was only high priest just that year. He actually served from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. And that's a pretty long time for a high priest to serve, which obviously means that he was keeping peace between Jerusalem and Rome. So here's the situation. If these religious leaders continue to allow Jesus to flourish, to continue to do these works and miracles, they already knew that he had had such a following before that they wanted to make him king. If you remember, right after he fed the 5,000 plus their families, they gathered around him and were trying to make him king, and he had to leave so they couldn't do that. We know that that's the threat that they sense. If Jesus is proclaimed king of the Jews, well, uh uh-oh, isn't Caesar, isn't some of his cohorts considered to be the king of the Jews? Wasn't Herod considered to be king of the Jews? Sounds like trouble, doesn't it? Sounds like somebody trying to usurp the power of Rome over Jerusalem. And the council, the Sanhedrin, was basically saying, here's the problem. If he continues to gain followers, they will proclaim him king. Rome will not like that. They will come in and they will destroy our temple, our place of worship, and they will take away our nation. They will destroy us. And since we're the leaders of this religion, they'll destroy us too. Our lives are in danger. That's their thinking. Instead of worshiping Jesus as the Messiah, trusting that he has the power of God, that he could lead them to whatever glory that God wanted them to have, they rejected him and said, well, Caiaphas actually has the words to say. Let's look at what Caiaphas says. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest at verse 49 that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that It is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. That's what Caiaphas says. Now, let's look at it the way Caiaphas thinks he means it. It is better for this man named Jesus to be killed so that this threat to the the Jewish way of life, our temple and our rules and our regulations and we as the council ruling over the Jewish people will continue to go on just like it always has. We will continue to have peace in the valley and Rome will not be upset. 
That's what Caiaphas was thinking, right? He wanted Jesus eliminated so their way of life, their control over the Jewish people and the peace that they were able to present to Rome would continue. But look at what John says. Pick up with verse 51. Now, Caiaphas did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not only for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Caiaphas didn't know that God was using him to prophesy a tremendous truth. How in the world can God use somebody that doesn't believe to prophesy? Well, let's go back to a man named Balaam in the Old Testament. The enemies of God hired Balaam to curse God's people. Yet every time Balaam opened his mouth, God spoke through him words of blessing for God's people. God can do that. So here again, God controls the words or uses the words that Caiaphas has as a prophecy about a truth. Jesus was not going to be killed by the people. Jesus would lay down his life. He would die for the people, not only for the nation of Israel, but for all believers. It says, for those scattered abroad, the children of God scattered abroad. Well, that obviously means the Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem, out in Galilee and the surrounding areas, but it also includes you and me, the Gentiles, those who believe the true children of God. That's who he will die for. What a wonderful gift. That will be still future tense in the scripture. But they don't understand it that way. So we look and we see that the religious leaders felt threatened. That's why they wanted to get rid of Jesus. They felt that he was going to cause a ruckus, that Rome would come in, destroy their temple, destroy their way of worship, possibly even kill them as religious leaders. And they would lose everything that they had worked for. He was trouble. So they plotted to kill him. Look at verses 53 and then we'll skip down to verse 57. Verse 53. So from that day on they planned together to kill him. Verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. They put a death penalty on Jesus. Without Jesus ever standing before trial, without him ever having the opportunity to defend himself, they had already become judge and jury and executioners. They were ready to get rid of Jesus. He was no longer welcome on earth. You know, did they put up wanted posters? I don't think they had a printing press to do anything like that. They made sure that the world around them knew Jesus was a wanted man. They made it known that anybody, anybody who knew where Jesus was was to report immediately so that they can go and seize him. And we know the end of the story, but we look and we see that Jesus is on God's timetable, not man's. Jesus could have let them come out to Bethany and they could have seized him They could have taken him in and did what they did basically a week or so later. 
that it wasn't God's time. So Jesus separates himself with his disciples. He seeks the place of solitude, and he leaves that area and goes to a place called Ephraim. We don't know exactly where Ephraim is. Uh, some believe it might be uh, an Old Testament city called Ephraim, which would have been about a day's journey to the northeast uh, on the edge of the wilderness, which would fit. We really don't know exactly where Jesus went. What we do know is he got far enough out where people weren't able to look for him or chose not to. Again, Jesus is on God's timetable. How close is that timetable? Well, I think I was wrong a few weeks back. When I said that Jesus, you know, would spend four days waiting for Lazarus to die, and I basically was putting that in that last uh, week and a half time of his life, I have a feeling that I was probably off a little bit because that did not take into consideration this time that Jesus would step away in solitude. But what we do know is that according to the scriptures here is that, picking up verse uh, 55, now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So what we do know is that the Passover is very near, even as Jesus isolates himself for this brief period of time. How long it takes, whether it's a few days, whether it's a week, two weeks, I don't know. Scripture is not completely clear on that. What we do know is that Jesus is on God's timetable. What did Jesus do out in this wilderness? We'll pick up with that next week. But right now, we need to look at the response to Jesus and how it applies to our lives today. Did you know that everything that happens in the Word of God has some application to our lives today? We know for a fact that these miracles happened. We know that Jesus performed these miracles there is so many evidences of it. Not just the scriptures, but if you look through historians that recorded periods of this time frame, they all talk about Jesus' miracles. Some just count him as a prophet of God. Some don't know how to explain it. But we know that these miracles took place. There are obviously people that had witnessed not only the miracle of Lazarus rising from the dead, but many of Jesus' miracles. And they believed. There's no doubt in their minds that Jesus was of God, that he was filled with the power of God. They may not have fully understood exactly how all that worked. Sometimes we still struggle with that. But they believed that Jesus was the one sent from God, that he had the power to bring life, not only life physical, but they believed that he had the power to give life eternal, salvation from her sins. And so there was true belief. Then there were those who were thinking that they believed, but they really didn't believe. Did you know that our churches are filled with people like that? They come to church for what they can get. They get prayed for. Some share a, a need in their family and they get ministered to, whether it's food or, or clothing or finances or something like that. They come for the fellowship. They love for people to be around to be around people and to talk and to enjoy just fellowshipping. Nothing wrong with that. Some people come for for business connections. 
They come so that they can make the connections with people in their, their community to build up their business. They come for things that please them, what they can get out of it. But yet they do not truly have a surrendered life to the Lord Jesus. That's like the people that went to the Pharisees. Many of them had believed or thought they believed. They didn't know what they believed. That's the people that had gotten their bellies filled with the feeding of the 5,000. And then when Jesus point blank says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no place in me. And then they turned and walked away and followed no more. They were no longer getting their needs met. Our world is filled with people like that. And then the most undescribable ones, the ones who totally reject Jesus as a whole, don't want to have anything to do with him or his people. They have rejected Jesus, no matter what evidence there is that Jesus is the Son of God. They reject him. And we can't understand that. And yet we see it in our media. We see it in our politicians. We see it in our neighbors. We see it in our people, in our community, that they deny God. They may think that there was a God that created, if they even think that. But they don't believe that God has any business in their life. They're basically saying, God, if you created me, that's fine. But I don't need you anymore. I'm doing just fine on my own. I deny that you have any place in my life. Any control, I'll fend for myself. I think I'm doing just fine on my own. And they reject Jesus wholeheartedly. He has no place in their life. And they can't stand people like us that believe that he does. They don't like hearing us proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what do we do with these people? The world is still around us. The world hasn't gone away, has it? It's made up of the very same people that Jesus dealt with in his day. Those who truly believed, those who followed him for what they could get, those who were skeptical, and those who flat out rejected him. That's our world today. What are we as Christians going to do about it? Well, why don't we do what Jesus' followers did? We've already studied the book of Acts, haven't we? We've already seen how the apostles went out into the world, how they became evangelists, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you remember? Not everybody believed them. They were faced with the same believers, users, skeptics, and deniers that Jesus faced and that we face today. Does that give us any excuse whatsoever not to share the gospel? Not a single excuse. According to the word of God, whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Can we make anybody believe? Absolutely not. Some people think, well, they've heard the gospel enough times. It's useless to share it to them anymore. No, it's never useless. <clears throat> I've known too many people <clears throat> who had heard the gospel too many times where people had already written them off and yet God confronted them somewhere down the road. 
I know one personally. Because I witnessed to him a number of times. I've already shared about him. I'll share his name. Mark Pewson. Worked with him at Kroger in my earlier years. I shared the gospel with him quite often. And he pretty much told me to go take a flying leap several times. I don't want to hear anything about it. He changed, went to another store. Two years later, he calls me. Says, Steve, this is Mark Pewson. First thing went through my mind is, why in the world is he calling me? He said, last night I gave my life to Christ. You were the first person that came in my mind. Do we give up? Do we say they've heard it enough times and just write them off? Never. It's never too late. I'm not taking any credit. God put another person in this man's life at the right time. The seed's been planted at least two years before. They were watered and then they took root and grew into everlasting life. That's how God works. We cannot give up on God. His word, His gospel is the gift of life. We have no option but to share it. We can't control how people will respond to it. Jesus Himself could not control how people responded to Him. His apostles had no control over who believed and who rejected. All we have is the commandment to go share the gospel. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, we come to you. Lord, we realize that Jesus is God. He is God the Son. We believe that with all of our heart. Lord, I believe that we here are truly followers of you. That we're not here just to see what we can get out of being in church. That we are true followers. But Lord, we know that unfortunately... Many churches are filled with those who are, who are simply there to see what they can get out of it. And Lord, we know there are many skeptics who have heard the gospel, but they just don't know what to make of it. They're not ready to surrender their lives to the Lordship of Christ. Lord, we know that unfortunately there are many, and they seem to be so vocal, who have openly rejected you and your son Jesus. But Lord, we have no excuse. We have absolutely no excuse but to continue being obedient to you and sharing what we have in us, the gift of salvation, eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, help us to be found faithful in sharing that message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.